you deal with people, whether it's individuals or governments or organizations, who make a choice. Do I really help or on the contrary hinder? An attempt at helping people make peace. As foreigners, when we go somewhere, our views are very often influenced by people who have interests that are not those of the people you want to help. You're listening to a special series of the Finding Humanity podcast with the elders, a group of leaders brought together by Nelson Mandela in 2007. I'm your host, Hazami Bermada, and I'm proud to be joined by my co-host, Mary Robinson. Mary is the former president of Ireland and former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights and chair of the elders. Together, we will unpack critical social and political issues and learn from the experiences of former presidents and prime ministers, UN officials, Nobel Peace laureates, freedom fighters, and human rights champions. Peacemaking is trying to end a conflict which is really very difficult. Peacekeeping is also tough work. It's maintenance of peace and prevention of further fighting. And there's the other dimension, which is peace building, which is dealing with the reasons why people fight in the first place and supporting societies to manage their differences and avoid conflict. In today's episode, we look at conflict, its causes and consequences. What role should the international community place on peacemaking? And how do you turn that into durable peace building? To explore this extremely complex subject, we have the honor of hearing from Lakhtar Brahimi. Mr. Brahimi is a member of the elders and has been at the heart of conflict resolution, peace building, and diplomacy for over seven decades. As a young man, he fought for Algeria's freedom from French colonialism and eventually became foreign minister. As special envoy for the Arab League, he helped broker the 1989 TAFE Accords that ended Lebanon's civil war. In 2004, he served as the UN Special Envoy in Iraq following the US-led invasion. And in 2012, he succeeded Kofi Annan as the UN Special Envoy for Syria. Mr. Brahimi says, quote, you cannot fight your way to peace. Sitting down with your adversary and negotiating is the only way to resolve conflict, end quote. These days, it's mainly malgovernance. When you have a government that is not doing very well, people are extremely patient, but at some stage, you know, the lid will go off because there is too much steam. And that is how conflict starts very, very often. And then also sometimes you have minorities that have been at the wrong end of the stick and they rebel and they stand up against the government. In addition to poor governance and corruption, there are a few new drivers of conflict. Climate change, growing inequalities, and forced migration, to name just a few. Mr. Brahimi, are we seeing an escalation in conflict, or is this just, we're just more exposed to it now, we have access to that information and data? With regards to the conflicts taking place today, 
Is this the norm? Um, I'm afraid the number of conflicts is on the increase now. Immediately after the end of the Cold War, in the early 1990s, conflicts started, as a matter of fact, very, very seriously to go down throughout the 90s and the beginning, perhaps till 2004, 2005. But uh, it started going up, maybe with Iraq, the invasion of Iraq. And I'm afraid it has kept going on and on. Although the numbers of conflicts fluctuate, in 2019 alone, 45 state-based conflicts and 67 non-state-based conflicts were recorded. This number is a record high since 1946. The two deadliest conflicts recorded during that time period occurred in Afghanistan and Syria. I agree very much, Lakhtar, that the war in Iraq was disastrous. Give us a bit of your sense of how that has contributed to a whole disturbance in a broad region. You know, the Americans went there on false pretenses. They were supposed to go there to find and destroy weapons of mass destruction. They knew perfectly well that there was none. Then they said, no, they wanted to bring democracy. There was definitely no democracy in Iraq in 2003 under Saddam. But I'm afraid I don't think there is much of it today. To put it a little bit in a simplified manner, what they have done in particular is that they helped Iran get rid of their main opponent, Saddam Hussein. But they did better than that. Actually, they helped the closest Iraqis to Iran to take over the country. So the way I put it is that they handed Iraq on a gold plate to Iran. That has completely, you know, upset the equilibrium. And Iran now says, you know, they, they say that publicly, we control four or five Arab countries, namely Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Yemen. Now, when a non-Arab country controls all those countries and has difficult relations with its neighbors, this is a prescription for disaster. Conflicts that have spanned decades or protracted crisis have become the new norm. According to the United Nations Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Assistance, or UNOCHA, More than two billion people, that's almost a quarter of the world's population, live in countries and territories affected by protracted crisis and conflict. Often, when we think of conflict, we only picture the fighting. However, the effects of conflict are far deeper and most acutely affect the poorest and most marginalized. One in every 70 people worldwide is living in a crisis setting and is in need of direct humanitarian assistance and protection. Since December, 900,000 civilians have been forced to flee. Caught in the fighting, dozens of children. By 2030, the prediction is that we'll have well over 60% of the global poor that will be living in fragile contexts. Mary, what groups are the most vulnerable when these conflicts and this violence not only arises but persists over so long? But clearly, uh, there are very vulnerable 
parts of the population. There are the very elderly, there are the very young, there are women, there are minorities, there are those who are living in deep poverty and then have conflict on top of that. But in many ways, I also see women in particular as having much more of a role in all of the ways of building peace, if I could put it that way, peacemaking, first of all, peacekeeping and peace building. I saw that in Northern Ireland. It was women who came out of the housing estates, the Republican and the Loyalist housing estates, and met each other. The men didn't dare, but the women were fed up with the kneecapping and the killing of their young, and they came out very courageously. But when it comes to foreign actors assuming their role in peacebuilding, not all intervention is good, as Mr. Brahimi explains. We sin in a lot of manners, one of them being this arrogance of foreigners when you are dealing with conflict, that these people don't know their own interests, they are stupid, Uh, we know better, and so this is what they should do. Whereas my little experience I have has shown me that, you know, the best help you can give people is to help them do what they want to do. Perhaps you can tell them from time to time, no, I don't think this idea is a good one. But you cannot really come with uh, your own, especially as foreigners when we go somewhere. Our views are very often influenced by people who have interests that are not those of the people you want to help. Here, Mr. Brahimi expounds on the protracted crisis in Syria, which has caused widespread displacement, devastation, poverty, and hunger since the uprisings and war broke out in 2011. Frankly, apart from the United Nations, all the people who were involved in Syria didn't care a bit for what happens to the Syrians. And that included, unfortunately, the government, the Syrian government. They didn't care what happened to their people. And so half of the country has been displaced. Half, 50% of the people have been displaced. And the destructions there look like what Germany in 1945. It's interesting, Lakhtar, your point so well made about people in a situation knowing far more and the need to listen to what they want. That was the message I remember very well that Nelson Mandela gave at a planning meeting in 2007 that I was fortunate enough to be present at. He sat at a round table with us and he said, be humble. When you go to a place, listen. People there know more than you do. We hear the word proxy wars in the media quite a bit. And then we also hear about how convoluted it is. I'm half Syrian, half Palestinian, and people ask, what's going on in Syria? My family were among those who have been displaced. When you have so many players, so many international players, domestic players, and information is really kind of hard to sift through, how do people start to make sense of what's actually happening? You know, the spoilers are quite often the very people who could really help. For more context, spoilers may be defined as, quote, groups and tactics that actively seek to hinder, delay, or undermine conflict settlement through various means for a variety of motives. So you deal with people 
whether it's individuals or governments or organizations, who make a choice. Do I really help or, on the contrary, hinder an attempt at helping people make peace? Just as I said a moment ago, in Syria, everybody who intervened, intervened to help the Syrians. But ultimately, what they did, and they knew perfectly well what they were doing, was really harming the Syrian people. Here, Mr. Brahimi talks about a meeting in Afghanistan that he organized in 1999. It was attended by the deputy ministers of neighbors of Afghanistan, as well as Russia and the United States. They vowed and they signed a declaration to say that they will not give any support in money or weapons to the factions that were fighting inside Afghanistan. Three days later, a new war started with money and weapons coming from some of those very countries. Then, of course, the peacemaker, the United Nations, has absolutely no role. It's finished. So, you see, spoilers have got to become genuine supporters of the peace process. Otherwise, you can't go very far. In between his Afghanistan assignments, Mr. Burhimi chaired an independent panel established by the then-UN Secretary General, Kofi Annan, to review peacekeeping operations of the United Nations. Known as the Burhimi Report, the document was a response to the failures of complex UN peacekeeping in the 1990s, particularly the atrocities in Rwanda in 1994, in Srebrenica, Bosnia, and Herzegovina in 1995. The report, welcomed by the UN Security Council in 2000, outlined several recommendations for reform, increased financial support, and significant institutional change. In the Brahimi report, there was a note that United Nations member states haven't yet implemented any standing UN army or standing UN police forces. And as a result, UN peace operations have been ad hoc and kind of based on the will of states. And so looking at this, what many would call a dysfunctional system, and I think you've also referred to it very directly as a dysfunctional UN peacekeeping and security operations, whose role is it? And what role does the UN have in ensuring international peace and security in cases where conflicts like this do have geopolitical realities? Just to make things in perspective, it so happened that the first important mission that was set up by the United Nations after the report in 2000 was the mission in Afghanistan, which I led. And I can assure you that uh, writing those recommendations was much, much easier than implementing them. (laughs) Uh, You know, Mary visited us in Afghanistan in those days and has had a close look at... uh, I remember, if I may interrupt you for a moment, Lakhtar, I remember you saying to me, we want the UN to have a light footprint. We want those from outside to have a light footprint and let the Afghani people control their own destiny. Yeah, your organization in those days, Human Rights, was the only one who accepted that. The other UN agencies, you know, Mm. ignored uh, this completely. They just went on with their business as usual. It was extremely difficult to implement the recommendations. Since then, there are new recommendations, 
by a new, you know, bigger group of people who worked much longer. You know, we did our report in four months. They had, I think, one year and a half or two years. But you see, Security Council is not functioning. That is, you know, peace and security in the United Nations is the business of the Security Council. And the Security Council is not, you know, at times it looks like it's not functioning at all. And this is the case uh, now. Is it the sole responsibility of the UN when we're talking about conflict resolution on a global scale and what needs to be done to actually start doing that better and more effectively? You know, the UN is the main tool the international community as a whole has at its disposal. There are, of course, you know, other groups like the European Union, the African Union, perhaps ASEAN in Asia, who also try to help. And you have a lot of non-governmental organizations. The chief one among them is, of course, the ICRC, International Committee of the Red Cross. They, by the way, do a splendid job wherever they go. They're extremely well organized. They know what they want to do and they keep to their mandate. I mean, there are people who say now the concept of international community doesn't exist. There is no community as such. You have countries, you have groups of countries, you have the use of these tools, but the Security Council as a body is practically not functioning at all. Mr. Brahimi emphasizes that while UN Security Council tools and mechanisms might be in place, they are not functioning properly. And as such, conflict resolution efforts remain inadequate. I was curious to learn more about effective solutions in this context. You both have been involved in several conflict resolution and peacebuilding efforts throughout your careers. What are some of the biggest mistakes that are made in beginning to even look at solutions for conflicts? And can you give us some examples? Uh, you, know, you have a lot of people who say, really, a conflict has a life. And the solution of the conflict is one stage in that life of the conflict. And therefore, peace will not happen in that particular place until the conflict is ripe to be solved. Is, is ready to be solved. This is often, you know, said of Lebanon. The civil war went on for 15 years and uh, all sorts of uh, efforts were made by the Lebanese, by their neighbors, by the United Nations, by the League of Arab States. Nothing happened. And all of a sudden in 89, I happened to be the man who was there. They were ready to make peace. So they were ready to make this, not I or the League of Arab States or anybody else. So this is one view. The other view is that, and it is possible, in some places you can impose peace. Then you'll have unity of the Security Council and you'll have readiness to use all means to push the people towards a solution using even force. The third way is really that is where the United Nations is unique, is to talk to people who are fighting a war, whether it's one country or involving a region. Try to encourage people slowly to make peace attractive to them. It's not an easy subject to discuss. Mr. Brahimi adds that invariably, a conflict that starts in one country 
will spill over into other countries. Afghanistan at one stage spilled over in the United States on the 11th of September. That is why it is terribly important with a functioning Security Council that remembers what they are there for to take a conflict as early as possible and see if you can help the people solve it earlier rather than later. What are the critical mindsets that actors need to bring with them to the table to be able to actually engage in proactive peacemaking, building, and keeping efforts? Well, maybe it's because of my human rights background. I think we do need more of a sense of addressing injustices, addressing the issues that have people in a kind of despair about uh, whether they will ever have any possibility of their basic rights being respected. Obviously, as we've said earlier, we need to listen with more humility, anybody coming in from the outside, and then try to empower and engage. And again, I can't emphasize enough from my experience how important it is to listen to women. Now we have COVID, and COVID has exacerbated all the inequalities. It has exacerbated the racial inequality. It has exacerbated the gender inequality, the poverty inequality. And somehow I I feel that this has brought out the intersectionality between these inequalities. Now we're looking at much more addressing of colonialism, which needs to be addressed. And histories need to be rewritten, basically, (laughs) Um, so that um, there is more of an understanding of the way that power has been exercised that has still repercussions for many societies. The causes and consequences of conflict are deeply complex and often appear intractable. I ask Mary and Mr. Brahimi, how do we get to a better place? I have a kind of hope that COVID, it has taken everybody outside their comfort zone. It's not equal, but we're all displaced and we're all more vulnerable and humanity is more fragile and we have to live in accordance with nature and we're going to need solidarity to do that. Young people seem to have that solidarity. I'm listening to these young climate activists and they're talking about those who are worse affected and asking for measures to be taken and taken urgently because there are those already much more affected than we are. Uh, I hope I'm not going to destroy the beautiful sense of optimism that uh, you you have brought here, but take the opportunity of all the ills that have uh, touched us because of Trump to create a system where neighbors talk to one another, where regions uh, try to work together, and where the planet can work together. The big, big, big issue is governance. Because governance means the rule of law, And therefore, you know what your rights are and will not allow anybody to trample over them. But you know also what your duties are and how you are obliged, you have to respect the rights of others. As this episode reminded us, humanity is fragile. And as many of us sit in the safety of our homes, it's jarring to be reminded that one in every 70 people around the world lives in a crisis setting and is in need of direct humanitarian assistance and protection. 
I want to thank Mary Robinson and Lakdar Brahimi for joining me on this episode of our new Finding Humanity podcast special series with the elders. It's on us, all of us, to speak up, to advocate for, and to invest into peace and justice for all. Through our podcast, we aim to educate and inspire you to take action. You have the power to contribute to real change. Please join us. To learn more about this episode, check out the links to resources on our show notes and on our website, findinghumanitypodcast.com. Before we go, I invite you to please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you like our show, please rate it, leave us a review, and share it to encourage other people to tune in. For other opportunities to engage with us and for additional programming around this series, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at find underscore humanity and on Facebook at Finding Humanity Podcast. In our podcast, we cover pressing and at times controversial social and political issues. The views and opinions expressed are those of the interviewees and do not reflect the positions or opinions of our producers or any affiliated organizations. Finding Humanity is a joint production of the Humanity Lab Foundation and Human Group Media. This special series is made possible in part by our collaborating partner, The Elders. Our executive producer is Camille Lorente. Associate producer is Fernanda Oriegas. Assistant producer is Diana Galbraith. And our research and policy lead is Carolina Mendica. Mixing, editing, and music by Maverick Aquino. I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode.